National Fishermen and Pacific Marine Expo are proud supporters of the Galley Stories podcast, as we make similar efforts to highlight the people and topics that define commercial fishing. You can see what that looks like in print and online all year long, as well as every November in Seattle when this community comes together at PME. Check out nationalfishermen.com and pacificmarineexpo.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys, welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. Today we've got Bill Jensen with uh, Bill, how are you? I'm doing good, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. So, uh, Petersburg guy. Yep. No, fourth generation from Petersburg. I was born down in Ballard, but my parents already lived up in Petersburg, so didn't spend much time in Washington and was right back home. Okay. So, were they fishermen as well? Fourth generation, you said. So, yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. yeah. On my dad's side, my mom, her family bounced around the States quite a bit. Her dad was in the Navy. But she moved up back in the 80s with the Forest Service. Okay. So born down there, was your dad fishing down there? Uh, No, he had some work down there in the shipyard. He'd go down and had a welding truck that he would tow it around and work down in all the shipyards. But it was just more, I was born in January and uh, they didn't want to have any medical issues in Petersburg. So nice. Okay. Down south. All right, so what, what's kind of your earliest memories of being around, obviously, a shipyard? Right? Um, not a whole lot of early memories in the shipyard. That was a little later on, but a lot of time on the boat. I mean, that would have been my, my first memories on my dad's gillnet or the twilight. Well, let's hear about some of those. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he picked up that boat when I was, oh, probably about 10 months old out at Ketchikan. It's an aluminum 36-foot gillnetter. And uh, probably one of my, my favorite pictures and first memories is sitting on his lap and pointing out the window, steering the boat as we're coming back up Wrangle Narrows from a, a gillnet opening. And that's uh, on his desk upstairs ever since. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, no, it, it was a great childhood. I wouldn't trade it for anything really. Um, I mean, my grandpa was a fisherman, great grandpa was a fisherman. Um, spent most of my time in the summers on the gillnet with my dad and his random, random crew throughout the years. And then at about 12 years old, I became full-time crew in the summers. Up until then, it was just off and on and going Gil- all gill netting. Baseball. Yeah, gill netting. So um, I haven't had a lot of Petersburg guys uh, on the show, but that group is so tight-knit. Every time you talk to one, it's like you're talking to a lot of them. Yeah. You know? So what? So let's talk about some of those childhood things you did around the fishery that you really remember. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there, there's so many different ways that we were close-knit. I mean, from the times that we could ride our bike and go dolly fishing, there'd be a group of the boys running around town, probably four to six of us or more at some times, just down in the harbors around all the old guys and just peeking over the rails, looking at the different boats. But one of the, the better memories that repeated every summer until we could get on the boat would be fishing off the old Ocean Beauty dock. It was in between the North Harbor and the Middle Harbor. So, I mean, we would just pretty much every day meet up down there in the mornings, depending on the tide and just uh, sports fish all day long and watch the boats go unload at Icicle, it's now OBI and Norquest, it's now Trident. And uh, one one way or another, we were always immersed in it. Yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of memories myself of throwing crab pots off the side of a dock even and, and oh, bring yeah. some in. Yeah, no, and when, once we graduated from the bikes and we could get into our smoker crafts and other 10 or 12 foot skiffs, we'd have the, the rule of you can't go past the WN buoy out the Narrows or you couldn't go further south in Scow Bay and we got to expand a little bit more once we got to that age. The, kind the, of before the, we could drive, but you could hang out in a skiff still, dad would go launch you and you'd go, go roar around in your life jackets and do all that. and. It was, it was one, one big family. I mean, it didn't matter if he was in town or not. I mean, everyone knows the harbor master and they could call him on Marine radio or whatever and <laughs> let him know what you were up to if you were misbehaving. 
So you said you couldn't go past the buoys. That was a parents. That was a that parents was the rule. Thing. That was the rule. Yeah. 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 I would start out with the red can right out in front of Icicle, and then you could graduate to like the WN buoy at the mouth of the Narrows, and then once you could drive and get a little bit older, okay, maybe you can go to Sockeye or go across Frederick Sound or something. But yeah, when we were younger, there was a, a fairly strict red can rule. <laughs> my dad's house was one row back from the water, so I mean. If my mom was home or someone else, they could they could definitely tell if uh, who, who was going where. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what was your first experience on a boat? You said twelve. You were a full paid share deckhand. Yeah, in the summers for sure. And then, um, I mean, first experiences were before I can really remember. But there's there was uh, always times to where we would go out as a family it was kind of family vacation it wasn't hawaii or something like that it was let's go catch our halibut ifqs so we'd hop on the boat and we'd my dad had switched over from crabbing and gill netting he'd got rid of his regular crew for the summer they'd either gone back to college or gone back to high school and then the family me my mom brother and dad um, we'd go longlining usually on the eastern shore of baranoff um, in chatham straits go catch a little bit of IFQs we had, go do some subsistence fishing when we weren't commercial fishing and just uh, go hang out for a couple weeks before school started again. Can you, uh, can you expand on subsistence fishing? What it, what it, one, what it is. Yeah. And secondly, what it means to you. Well, subsistence for us was, I mean, how we ate growing up. I mean, with uh, how much groceries cost in Southeast Alaska with all the barge fees, and that's before these fuel spikes and the, the price for fuel. Um, we, we ate, oh man, I, I would say probably four, four to five meals a week were usually some sort of seafood, halibut or shrimp or salmon, uh, rockfish. But subsistence, I mean, when you live in Petersburg or Wrangell or the smaller coastal communities, you can actually um, have a subsistence card. It's a federal card to where you're not having to pay for it. Just your right of living in rural Alaska is that you can go harvest a certain amount of seafood with a certain amount of um, gear. So longlining where you have your ground line you're setting across the bottom anchored on either side anywhere from shoot 120 feet to 600 feet deep depending on where you're at Um, you get 30 hooks for uh, your halibut skates and you can keep 20 fish a day and we would do that after we were all done with long line you would have to deregister and do all of that but uh, you could fill your freezer with halibut. We'd process it ourselves. You could go catch your own shrimp, go catch your own salmon. That was kind of the, the home pack for the winter. Mm-hmm. What what type of shrimp are you catching there? Uh, mostly spot prawns. I mean, sometimes we'd get into side stripes and other stuff like that, but we'd, we'd mostly target spot prawns. Really, really good spot prawn harvest around southeast there. Making my mouth water. Oh, man. Yeah, no, me too. And they're good size, too. They are. And that yeah. cold water helps them a lot. Oh, man, they, they really pop. I mean, as soon as you pop their heads off and um, put the salt water over the top of them and chill them down on ice, I mean, they turn from a like a decent pink color to a nice deep red, and their white spots just kind of kind of glow. It's nice. pretty, pretty amazing. And you just boil them up? Yeah, no, usually just boil them up in some salt water right on the old Dickinson oil stove on the boat. And then as soon as they float, they're, they're ready to get pulled out and <laughs> have some nice butter and you're off to the races. Awesome. Awesome. Had to be a lot of great childhood memories created with that close of a family and yeah, no, participating it, it, that way. It really was. I mean, and, and when we were when we were real young, my dad would do a lot of the baiting up and do some of that. And it would let us explore a little bit more. It would be me and my mom and brother would get out in the in the skiff and go beachcombing and we'd go look for fossils in some places, go look for glass balls or floats on the beach and just do all of that. But the the real fun exploring was when you got into some of the old cannery or like herring saltery sites. I mean, all over southeast, if you look at an old cannery map, I mean, it's almost hard to read the chart itself. There were so many sites all throughout Southeast Alaska. Um, and we definitely have some deep roots in that as well, not necessarily in the cannery side, 
like up in uh, Fanshawe Bay, my grandmother, great aunt, and their mother, Willie, they were actually manning the post office there. So that post office would get serviced by a steamship, and then all of the uh, mink farms and fox farms and canneries in the area, they would come in and row in and get their mail from that old post office. And one of my favorite memories as a kid was actually walking through that old post office. It was almost to the point where you couldn't walk through it anymore. And probably today, I mean, you could see some remnants of the foundation, but there's uh, the old wild roses, I think, are still there. I believe it was a lilac tree that some people actually have some starts of in Petersburg. They would go out and cut branches off and do starts in their garden is still visible. There was the old Alaska strawberries spread out on the sandy beach. Um, no, I mean, just, yeah, just, just the exploring that you could do and then the family history behind it was just always so much fun. And when you would get to a site that you might not have family ties to, you would just try to imagine who was actually there and what they lived through in these picturesque southeast bays and coves all all over the place so let's talk a little more about beachcombing uh what's some of the cool things you found while while you were beachcombing and then i want you to explain the glass balls a little bit for our listeners (laughs) yeah yeah um i i think the one of the things that might not be as cool now at the age that i'm at but when i found this particular float that sticks in my mind I, I believe it was an old Korean float it had some uh, Korean writing on it is what we ended up finding out. Uh, I, I think I was probably about eight years old and just my, my little mind then, I mean, you just have that vast imagination just thinking, wow, this came all the way from that side of the Pacific Ocean, all the way to here, made it through the inside passage. And I found that one I believe it was in Red Bluff Bay. So, I mean, they would have had to have come up Chatham and then hung a left to hit the coast again. And it made it all the way across the Pacific, potentially. And that's what I thought, at least. And I, I remember I still have that on my desk at home. Um, but that, that's one I actually wrote a little story about in fourth grade or whatever. They had your summer experiences when you start back up in school. Let's write a few paragraphs on what you found. And oh, we're going to have to get a copy of this. Yeah. No, I, I might have to dig back through it. I bet, I bet my mom has it somewhere. She kept all of that stuff. But uh, that, that one really sticks with me. But, I mean, there, there's all sorts of cool stuff. I mean, the... The fire bricks that my dad has for when we cook king salmon in the backyard with alders, those came from a cannery site, I believe, on Admiralty Island. I mean, depending on depending on where you're at, there's all sorts of different things. I, I couldn't bring this other one home with me, but the engineering brain that I have was just mesmerized by this fox farm that we found near Fanshawe. I mean, this guy had little conduit railroads he'd built to go push carts around for all of his feed stations. You could follow this old conduit railroad through the woods for about half a mile until you found one of his old trolleys where all the wood was gone, but the steel framework was still there, the old rail car wheels and everything. And you could see the chicken wire and a little bit of the framing left from his fox farm and mink farm pens and everything else. So. It just uh, depends on where you go. There's always something to find, even even now in 2020, 2023. Let's explain the glass balls. Yeah, the glass balls. So th- those are old Japanese floats that they used to use for fishing. And some of them might have some really intricate, tight weaving uh, that's encasing the entire glass float because that's how their attachment mechanism was to their nets or whatever else that they were trying to keep off of the bottom or keep floating in some sort of substrate in the ocean. But a lot of them would would break loose and they would end up mostly on coastal beaches, but sometimes they'll work their way around and come inside. But uh, if you, yeah, it depends on where you're at, there might be different sizes. Like some might be like a orange or a grapefruit, or if you're really lucky, like a volleyball or basketball sized one. 
Um, I think the, the biggest one I've ever seen was probably a basketball size, like in the wild, I guess you would call it, down off of Noise Island or Doll Island in that area. Um, there are certain areas down there where you could only dream of beachcombing, like Forester Island, which is about 14 miles off the coast of Dahl. Uh, but that's, that's a bird sanctuary, so technically you're really not supposed to go out there and step on the beach, but um, pretty, pretty pretty cool landscape once you get down down that far south and that far off the coast. Awesome. What about, obviously your first uh, fishing experiences have been with family, but I'd like to hear about your first uh, adventure out without family, your first commercial job. Yeah, so that, that would have been, well, first one away from my dad was also with family. I was 14 years old, got kicked onto my cousin Jeremy's boat, the harvester, when we made a couple couple openings out of Hidden Falls over the third and fourth of July. That was uh, that was that was definitely an experience for uh, a young man of fourteen being on a closure in the fourth of July in Warm Springs, but maybe that's for another story. And then uh, I fished with my dad for one more year after that. And then when I turned sixteen, it was time for me to move on. We were having few too many differing opinions he's he's fairly stubborn I'm fairly stubborn I wanted to, to work a little bit more was looking at maybe wanting to get my own boat but couldn't quite swing it so my younger brother stepped in on his boat and I went to fish with Craig Evans on the Orion uh, that was another saner it's an old Delta Winclair it's like a 54 footer or something like that and Craig, Craig is where I really, really started learning about seining and commercial fishing in general. I mean, the guy has a, a wealth of knowledge, and he is one of the only boats I've ever heard of where there was actually like an information packet before you got on the boat. There was a manual. I mean, you, we're talking like anything from what's starboard, what's port, what's the bunt on a seine net, which is the money end, the heavy, heavy web at the end that all of your fish get rolled on board with, to what a plunger pole is, a ring on the purse seine that helps you purse up and trap all the fish in the net. And I'll, I'll never forget when he handed me that packet, I was already kind of nervous because I hadn't fished with uh, anyone besides family before. and. He said, Bill, there might be a test on this. There might not, but there might be. If you if you don't pass, well, you probably get half share. We'll have to talk about it. But if you pass it, yeah, we'll, we'll look at full share after we see how you work out. But no, I'll never forget that. I read, read through that whole book. I wish I still had it. And the, the funny thing is, his wife, Ginger, was one of my middle school teachers. So you could tell that Craig came up with a lot of the ideas and everything, but I felt like I was reading <laughs> a study guide from one of my world history classes. <laughs> That's impossible. So awesome. same, same sort of font, same layout and everything else. So, she probably made them. Yeah, so I'm pretty, pretty sure that Ginger helped him make those. And it, 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 was, it was pretty cool. I mean, um, the, he's another generational fisherman from, from Petersburg to where his his father Ray was one of the one of the original fishermen in Icicle when that first started. He still, at that point, was tendering for Icicle on the the southeast or the southeastern. I can't remember. I think it was the southeast was their tender, and uh, he's one of three brothers that all all have their own seine boats um, in southeast. So. If I wasn't with one family, I was honestly with another. I mean, after openings, you, you'd raft up with Chris and Eric sometimes. And uh, yeah, it, it, was just, it was just cool. I mean, it might not have been with the Jensen family, but I was still with the, the Petersburg fishing family, no matter wherever I was. Like, like I said, I, I get that a lot whenever I talk to someone from Petersburg. It's always a, it, like they know each other. Like, yeah. Just, it's that small of a place, but it's really not that small of a place, but our industry is that small. Yeah, the industry is that small, and it's it's pretty cool now that I'm, I'm working with Trident, that I mean, we're, we're sitting here in, 
Accutan, and there's a Petersburg boat right outside un- unloading cod. I mean, I was in Dutch Harbor. I got weathered in there over the, I think it was the 2nd, 3rd, 4th of July this last summer, and I ran into Aaron Severson and the Jody Marie crew, the old boat that I, I fished on. I mean, once I got done with Craig, that was um, just one season, unfortunately, but then I moved on to fish with the Seversons on the Odin and Jody Marie, and that, that lasted about well, 10, 10, 12 years, pretty pretty consistently, all through high school, all through college, and then uh, a couple of years after college, and then I, I crabbed after that when I would take a break from trying. So... Um... What, 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 in your history of fishing, what has been your best experience? I know it's going to be hard because all this family stuff you oh, got, man. but yeah. Well, there's there there's a few that stick out. I I would say probably one of the first ones was my first year seining on the Odin. I remember I was really unsure of what I was going to do after high school still. This was uh, going from my junior year of high school into my senior year of high school. And I had just got done with a, with a sane season with Mark and was uh, trying, to, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And he ended up, unfortunately, hurting his back a little bit. And I remember selfishly thinking to myself, Ooh, this might be my chance. It might be a little bit of long lining. They might need another hand. I don't, I don't really care what I get paid. I just want to go and see what this is all about on a conventional gear boat. Because with my dad, we were fishing snap-on gear, which is where you have these stainless steel snaps that you're just snapping on a ground line that's going on the bottom that's weighted down. There's leads in the line and everything else. But this is actually old stuck gear to where there are ganyons that are um, tied or spliced into the ground line with rocks in between every skate holding it down so there's a there's no taking the hooks off once they're coming back over the rail and when you're setting it all over you can get a lot gnarlier snarls it was just stepping back up or stepping up for the first time into really a professional fishery and i was i think 17 years old at the time and i remember being really nervous my dad egging me on like hey Go oh, ask Mark. We're taking the same stuff off the boat. That'll take you long lining. And uh, sure enough, I asked him, and he said, "Yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll be able to give you full share, or maybe even half. But we'll, we'll see what happens. My my back's kind of screwed up. You can move tubs, and you know how to dress halibut, right? Said, oh yeah, no, dress dressed halibut. Growing up with my dad, so just tell me what I need to do, and I'm all there. So ended up going into the school and. Letting him know, yeah, I'm probably gonna miss the first 10, 14 days of school. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go long lining. It's time, time to go fishing, make some more money for college, and and do all of that. And that was one of my first really proud moments fishing, being able to get on that boat specifically and go long lining with that crew. It was just a, a fun, a fun group of people that still weren't using auto baiters. It was just a old school school crew. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, besides that, probably getting into our first West Coast dungeon crab fishery with the Odin many years later, I think that was probably nine years later for something like that. I had just graduated college trying to figure out again what I was going to do and uh, hopped on with Cameron, Mark's son, crabbing. And he had only done one season with Daniel Chrome on the Arctic Fox and figured out that, no, this is the next challenge that I want. He, he wanted to go take the Odin, which is a beautiful 58-foot Hanson, down to the Washington coast and, and go crabbing. So, I mean, it was a group of guys that I think I was 20 years old, so that would make Cam and Trevor probably like 24 and 25 and one of our other friends, Pete Koopman, um, he was a year or two older than us, but still a, a green crew of under 30 to where the skipper is the only guy that had one year of experience doing this fishery. He bought 500 pots. He bought all the buoy line. 
he bought all the corks. We spent three months, three and a half months straight, building that entire string, shipped all the buoy line south, all the corks south. I mean, we're talking thousands of fathoms of buoy line, 1,500 to 1,600 cork setups that we had to cut line for, tie all the knots, paint it all, hang it all up to dry in their warehouse in Petersburg. And we had to stuff a 40-foot container van full of this stuff and send it south. And then the rest we put on the Odin and drove the boat south. But then after that, we had to go into Bellingham, build the 500-pot string, and uh, get going. But it that's, that's an experience to never forget. His brother Aaron came out, and another guy named Josh Kahn, who is a veteran in that fishery, really. And... Uh, the, the first pots we started hauling up just, just loaded. I mean, ended up loading the Odin in a day and a half or something like that. I don't think we even got through the full 50 pot string. Um, now that we're six years later, hopefully Cam doesn't mind me telling that story, but it, <laughs> it was a pretty cool break into that, to that fishery. Because I mean, the, the year before was the pink salmon disaster and 2016 in southeast where i mean i fished for two and a half months and i think i made about seven grand and was still paying rent in bozeman montana didn't really have much money was living in my dad's basement couldn't afford to do much in petersburg had to had to get a draw before we could even go crabbing to pay my rent i was freshly out of college so getting done with that fishery and having some money in my pocket and conquering something that was supposedly one of the hardest hardest fisheries around right now was it, it was a good time it was a cool feeling with those four young guys to, yeah. to go out and have that experience. I'm, I'm sure there was a friendship made among that crew that you still have today yeah no there, there definitely was I mean um, I'd always looked up to Cam and Trevor growing up I mean uh, we all played ball in Petersburg and they were on that state championship team when I was in eighth grade and uh, Cam was a junior and Trevor was a senior. So just just always striving to, to play and work with those guys and then being able to have an experience like that was, was pretty cool to come back to full circle about six years, five years after that. Okay, what about what about your worst experience? Oh, my worst experience. You've, you've there, been scared on a boat. I, I, no, I, yeah, no, it's definitely happened. There's, yeah, there's probably three that, three that I can really think of. Um, what, one of them wasn't necessarily too bad. It was kind of a split second kind of deal. Uh, Trevor and Pete will probably remember this one. We had well, 10, 10, 15 pots or so left on the back deck of the Odin that, that first that first year of crabbing. And the weather was starting to come up a little bit. We were making our way back towards Westport. It, it really wasn't that bad. But um, we, we ended up getting a kind of a, a rogue wave, which none of us had ever seen before. It was our first real ocean fishery that we done the three guys on back deck and I, I just remember we were setting gear on either side of the boat and all of a sudden we'd look up we're, we're, I don't know probably in 14 foot seas or something like that and there was a wave that was coming on our stern port quarter that prop, probably in the mid 20s or a little bit bigger and uh, all of a sudden it combed over the back deck and it was rail to rail white water and I remember being lifted up and grabbing the picking hook that was right next to me and the stack of pots that was still on board went sliding across the horse mats. But while this is all happening, I'm looking on deck and I mean, Pete ended up underneath the, uh, the horse mat and just a thick, like three quarter inch black mat. So you're protecting the deck and your, your, your pots can kind of slide around when you're positioning them. but kind of also stay in place so they're not on the steel deck. And uh, Trevor was kind of swimming around a little bit and I got pinned to the rail by those pots. And I just remember we all <laughs> looked at each other wide-eyed and 
gambled over to Loudaler and, oh, you guys all okay? I didn't quite see that one back there. Uh, let's uh, let, let's stack down and pack it in and, and jog for a little bit. Um, and we were, we're all wearing our, our life vests and stuff like that, but it, it's, it's still interesting when you're 20 miles off the coast or something like that and you get, you get lifted up right up to the edge of the rail you're swimming in three feet of water on the back deck that clears out real quick um, the the boat was fine i mean it's one of the most seaworthy boats i've been on there's no chance that we were going down but it was just one of those rogue waves that kind of fills up the deck and you get a little surprise um yeah besides that i mean prob probably being in southeast going herring pounding and going going around um, Gardner in mid-Chatham there. I, I remember one trip when I was in high school going up, we had 1,400-pound uh, concrete anchors on deck and a bunch of ground line and the fish holds and everything else. And it, it was one of those trips to where you're, you're sitting at the galley table and you're looking down at the bottom of the trough and you're looking up at the sky and there's no, no in-between. I mean, this 36 foot gill netter going around Gardner when the tide's running a little bit. I mean, it was, it was probably only eight footers at best, but still you can get tossed around when you're in the trough, having to run all the way over to Yasha Island and then quarter to where you're running straight up Chatham. But the, the one thing that I remember from that trip was I mean, my dad's typically not nervous and he wasn't too nervous then, but uh, those concrete blocks is what really had our attention. So those were meant for anchoring our herring pounds for a row on kelp fishery, where you're kind of part fisherman, part farmer, where you're harvesting kelp, putting them in pounds and have a net around them. And then, and then you introduce herring in there so they can spawn all over the kelp over a course of three to five days, I think it is, and it's a, a Japanese market. But uh, just just worried that one of those concrete blocks would, would break loose and then you're you're pretty unstable all of a sudden. You got 1,400 pounds that could slide around and wreak quite a bit of chaos on an aluminum boat. Yeah. Um, but it, it, again, wasn't, wasn't a big deal. I've been, knock on wood, really, really blessed in the fisheries and those experiences to where if those are my two kind of worst experiences that come to mind that uh, I've been doing okay uh, broke my arm when I was younger but that was more of a dipshit move than anything else and I think I was in preschool when that happened and it was more of a hairline fracture but I was at that point my job was moving bait jars and moving bait, not really cutting bait or sorting crab as much, but there was kelp on the pot launcher. So I remember reaching up there to swipe it out and not paying attention to what was going on. And my dad flipped a pot out of the block and the pot landed on my arm. And the other side of my arm was a two inch piece of flat bar that the pot would rest against. So, I mean, it was a 70 pound pot against a four year old arm. So there wasn't, four years old. <laughs> there wasn't, wasn't much of a chance for me. I think that hopefully there's uh, some kind of a statute of limitations against uh, child abuse or putting child endangerment. Would be the oh, I, I, think I, I think I signed a waiver. <laughs> nice. I, I think I put a handprint for a waiver, but yeah, no, our, our preschool teachers really wondered what happened that break because I was one of three kids that showed up with a cast after that little break from preschool. So it was me and my, my buddy Jace Payne and one of the other local kids, uh, Austin Strickland. They, those two kind of self-imposed it on each other. One had a broken arm and the other one had a broken ankle. But yeah, we all, all showed up with casts after... 10 days off from preschool or whatever it was. And our, our teachers kind of raised their eyes and shook their heads at that one. So what, what, uh, what has fishing given you and what have you gotten from it? I, I mean, I, I would say probably everything I have would have to have to come back to fishing one way or another. And I, I honestly don't know 
anyone in Petersburg who could or should say any different or most places in Southeast. Um, I'd say my fondest memories, my uh, most frustrated memories, my um, work ethic I got from my family, the Seversons, Craig, um, the O'Neills, I mean, everybody that I herring pounded with or any anyone that I interacted with on a boat. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I would say fishing probably steered me in every direction I've ever gone. Um, in one, one form or another, I'll probably be attached to a fishery for the rest of my life. Uh, if it's with Trident or if it's going back home and just getting a boat or opening up or taking over my dad's shop. I mean, he's a, a welder fabricator. That was the other, the other thing I did growing up. But that, that was all based around the marine industry. I mean, we're talking about making bait sheds for 58-footers, like what are outside right now, or uh, rebuilding a boom on a gill netter, or putting a shelter deck on a gill netter, or a hay rack. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd say everything was pretty much fisheries-oriented since I was young. What advice would you give to someone trying to get in? Um, I mean, don't don't be afraid to fail or to start out small. I mean, that's one of the big things. Uh, I personally don't own any permits, don't own a boat. Really wanted to get into that route, but when when I was getting out of high school and. 2011 and then when I was getting out of college in 2015-16 it, it was I don't know there, there was a little bit we were on an uptick in 2011 for salmon but then in 15 we were on a downtick for seining and everything else and then the cost of boats and permits were going up I'd never been on the Bristol Bay side of things so that I didn't really see as an option for me but uh, there's all sorts of opportunity you just start start crewing start getting out and getting your experience get your sea time there's plenty of highliner boats right now that don't have crew because people um around coastal alaska don't i don't know the the younger generation doesn't doesn't want to do it i guess right now or they need some some steering or some better role models uh if you're trying to get on the fishing side of things, seining would be a great place to start. If you're trying to get into the processing and fishing side of things, there's great programs with Trident and OBI and Silver Bay to where you can trade start skills. There. Trade skills for sure. I mean, one thing that we're Everybody's doing right lacking, now. Right? Oh man, everybody in general. I mean, my job right <laughs> now, I'm the division manager of refrigeration. Um, the <laughs> Accutan, the biggest the biggest seafood processing plant in North America. We had two refrigeration people last year to start a season, and it was kind of a scramble. We we got people moving, we got people rolled out, and uh, got got through it. Kudos to the Accutan team; they did a great job. This year, we got six people here right now. We're starting to fill out. We're starting to to get people in place, but it's still hard to hire people. Um, right, right now, we're getting a, a trade school partnership put together with Aptec and uh, some other groups to where we're, we're trying to lure people in and say that, look, the seafood industry is here. It's here to stay. And it's something that you can build a career around. I mean, it's a good wage right now. We'll pay you to go to school for two years. You come back. You work for us for two years. You're debt free. In fact, you're making money the whole time you're doing it. We're paying you to go to school. We're paying your room and board. We're going to have you come in and be an apprentice and learn from all the old timers and everybody else that are in all of these plants throughout Alaska, from St. Paul to Accutan, down through Southeast, wherever. And then you, you have a real trade and you get out. I mean, it's not just one thing. It's diesel mechanics. It's electrical. It's um, refrigeration, I hope. I 
hope we can get some more of you that are listening to do refrigeration. Well, since we've already turned this into a commercial, <laughs> okay, because that, that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and give them your email address? <laughs> well, they can they can look that up. <laughs> if, if you want it, wjensen at tridentseafoods.com. <laughs> there, there you go, guys. But, yeah, I mean, to get away from the commercial side of things and to get back to just storytelling, I mean, there, I, I don't know. The, the fisheries, even if you feel like everything has been invented right now, like we have our limited entry fisheries, you have all of that to where you're not, you might not feel like you're pioneering something new. I mean, sure, you might not be making up a new fishery, but Alaska is still just so raw that there is so much to see that you're, you're still going to be awe-inspired when you come to these locations. I mean, I have spent all 29 years of my life in Alaska, and in the last year, year and a half that I've been out into the Aleutians, I feel like I was born again into Alaska. I mean, when you go to a Accutan, or you go to a Sandpoint, or you go up to St. Paul in the middle of the Bering Sea, Absolutely it's metal. a different feeling than being in Southeast. The air's better. Yeah, <laughs> the air is better. It's, air it's is cleaner, it's crisper. You have a different feeling about you when you get here. It's just raw. I mean, the mountains that we're able to look at from the penthouse are it, it's pretty cool, and that's just in Akutan Bay. I mean, that's the, the best sunrises and sunsets, and not just here, but I mean in the state of Alaska. The mm -hmm. air is so pure and clear yeah. that, that, that I've been all over, and yeah. the sunrises and sunsets here are amazing. It's something else. In Alaska. In yeah, when, when you're flying around with Theo from Precision Air, and you're going from Sandpoint to Akun or going wherever, and you're flying by the volcanoes that are puffing a little bit over in that Pavlov that's over yep. by uh, yep. Sam Pavlov. Yeah, when when you're when you're seeing that, or when you're you're sitting at the I can't remember the bunkhouse name. But it's up on top of the hill on Sam Point, and on a clear night, you can look over and you can see a little bit of ash or see a little bit of spurting out of the volcano. I mean, it's it's different still very much feels like the wild west even though it's a little a little more civilized than it was when my my dad or uncles were out here uh crabbing on the adventurer and doing stuff on the mariner boats and all that back in the 70s and 80s i'm about real sure i know the answer to this already but the strongest mentor in your life strongest mentor in my life biggest that, influence i mean that yeah be my my dad. I mean, they would, there's there's been <laughs> there's been three marks in my life that have really left an impression. It would be Mark Jensen, my dad, Mark Severson, and then another guy named Mark Britton. He's a refrigeration contractor. I, I think they they carried me through the three phases of life. My dad had me in the little shit phase when he was trying to train me. Then Mark got a little bit more refined, but still Mark Severson got a little more refined, but still a little bit of trouble version uh, that he worked on on the same boat. And then Mark Britton got me when I first started with Trident and was going from a mechanical engineering technology student to trying to learn industrial refrigeration. I mean, you come out of college, you think you know everything, and then you meet an old Marine that uh, really knows what's going on and will share that with you and let you know if you're wrong. And he, he won't he won't let you ramble. As soon as he starts to hear a line of what you don't know is actually going on, he'll just cut you off and set you straight, which is really more of what we need right now. Let's not forget the fourth mark that uh, got you to tell the story. Let's see, yeah, maybe that's my fourth phase. I mean, I'll, I'll be turning 30 next week, so maybe you're leading me into my fourth phase of yeah, life just right trying, now. Just trying to grab some credit or <laughs> some air time. Um, so, do you have any final words? Anything you want to share, you feel like you need to say? No, not not really. I mean, just if if you're interested in Alaska or interested in fisheries, don't, 
don't second guess yourself. There's so many opportunities these days to get in on a basic level seining in Southeast or gill netting up in Bristol Bay or doing something like that. that I mean, it's, it's still the same story to be told. It's just a different, a different generation and there's all sorts of opportunity. I mean, the, the fisheries will still be there and um, just just go for it one one way or another. That's that's all I would hope for. I mean, we to keep these coastal communities alive, we need we need more people to buy in. We need more people to be permit holders. We need kids in Southeast to come out of high school and have their high school counselors saying, hey, no, you can you can do a trade. You can do a fishery. You don't necessarily have to go to college if you want to. Yeah, go, go to college, go to college and come back. We need the Alaskan economy to pick up and that's that's one way to do it in our our sector. Takes all of us. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Nebraska boy Yeah. and here I sit, right? Yeah. So it's the call of the water. It is. Um, all right, Bill, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's been, you're a pretty good storyteller. Oh, I mean, yes. really. Thanks. Uh, I, I've learned some things. <laughs> so. All right. You sure that's it? Uh, yeah. I mean, no thank yous. No time we got. Well, I mean, yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you to the four marks. I got no, no, I got to change that now. Um, no, I mean, it's whoever gave me the opportunities or believed in me to, to let me get into the fisheries or John Webby for coaxing me into Trident. Thank you, John. Um, he said, well, if you don't like it, just do it for a year and go back to fishing. Well, six years later, I'm still here. here you are. Probably be a while longer. Yeah, I, I do encourage anyone uh, that does like the skill trade aspect. Um, that's a way to go. I mean, every, not, not only Trident or every, everybody is after it. Every single person, not even in the fisheries. I mean, even if you're listening Farmers to this and you, yeah, if you don't want to be in Alaska, I mean, there are so many opportunities in the skilled trades program to seek what you want. Some people will even pay you in an apprenticeship program to go through school. It's 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 a great opportunity, no matter where you are. Just ask Mike Rowe. Yeah, yeah. Right? dirty jobs. Yeah. Okay, Bill. Well, again, thanks for the, taking the time to sit down and do this. Um, all right, guys. It's been another episode of Galley Stories. Stories of Bering Sea and Beyond, and thank you all for listening. And for those of you that stuck around a little longer than you thought, <laughs> um, as often happens when the microphone gets turned off, more stories come. So we know we're talking to Bill Jensen. It's actually William. Yeah. He's named after? No, I'm actually named after my, my great grandmother, Willie. But uh, yeah. William Bernard, so named after Great Grandma Willie and Grandpa Ben. So I kept blabbering after Mark shut off the mic, and I guess he felt like I had something else to say. I want to hear about Grandma. You want to hear about Grandma? So Great Grandma Willie, I mean, she was part of that story earlier on about being a postmistress at the Fanshawe Post Office. But I mean, Willie was an absolute character. Um, never, never got to meet her. She actually passed away before I was born, but she lived a pretty amazing life in Southeast Alaska from working at Fanshawe to being a stewardess or waitress on a paddle wheeler that would go from Wrangell up to um, Telegraph Creek in British Columbia. I mean, there there was there were some pretty cool adventures to be had back in Southeast in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, when you were just a territory, uh, it I don't know. There there was just so many stories I heard as a young kid that made me wish I got to know my namesake. She was she was a, a tough old gal that got to see what Southeast Alaska was. Uh, really like before there were paved streets back when there was just a boardwalk from downtown petersburg out to sandy beach or before the ball fields were in place um, before all that 
that fill was put in and all those canneries like the old Northwest building and TU and even Napa Auto Parts were actually on the tide line and not on asphalt like they are now. So what, what I've taken from this all this addition right here is your grandma was cool. But more importantly, we all get to call you Willie from now on. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> just call me Slick Willie. <laughs> I just I, I wanted to hit record again because, uh, again, uh, many times after we end stop a recording is when I get a lot more stories. You know, uh, oh, I forgot to say or I, I wanted to say, but uh, the, the grandma story is pretty cool. Yeah, in the history know, there. Great grandma Willie was she she was she was a character that was definitely definitely known known throughout Petersburg. Um, one of the stories about her that really sticks with me is she was, I believe the apartment was above the old, it was either above the old Hammer and Wecon hardware store or somewhere else downtown there in Petersburg. And she actually had someone break into her apartment one night and uh, rob her. And instead of really making a big deal about it, she ended up just buying a, a 38 and some brass knuckles. And as a kid growing up, those brass knuckles hung out around my grandma and grandpa's house. And the, the 38, I think my Uncle Tom might have it down in Portland. I think he might might own that, but I'm pretty sure it stayed in the family. But yeah, just a classic, classic Alaska story from uh, Southeast. Okay, well, with that, guys, this will be it. <laughs> so thanks again for tuning in, and uh, we'll have a lot more episodes coming out. Obviously, you've heard from our new partnership and uh, looking forward to hearing from all of you uh, right in and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes, whether you like it or not. We're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.